Today, my guest is Dr. Barry Lubin. He is the medical director and medical review officer for Affinity eHealth. He is certified in and has extensive experience with addiction medicine. I asked him here today because I, for one, need to learn a little bit more about drug testing, and perhaps some of you listening also need to learn a little bit more. Barry, before we jump into the weeds, or should I say the urine, <laughs> he has a urine, sense of humor, uh, folks. And blood, right. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do currently. Okay, very nice. I am a physician, graduated from medical school longer ago than I care to remember, but I, I've been a physician since 1974. I did a three-year residency in internal medicine, and I practiced internal medicine for 12 and a half years. Uh, in 1989, almost 1990, uh, my own addiction came to light. I was intervened on by the uh, Florida Professional Recovery Network, which is an intermediary between the medical board and the doctor. Uh, and I was intervened on because they heard I might have a problem with cocaine, which I did. Uh, I had wow. a serious problem with cocaine. So in 1989, I left that practice, went to treatment and never returned to the practice of internal medicine. After I left treatment, I went to work in addiction medicine, became certified uh, as a certified addiction medicine specialist. And when the American Board of Addiction Medicine was created, I also became uh, a member of that board as a diplomat of the board. Um, that's not the end of the whole story. That's just the middle. Uh, that lasted until 1999, at which point I relapsed in my disease. Uh, you know, having worked in treatment, I unfortunately developed a, well, I'm so special that I could probably just do a little. Well, mm. that was one of those great lies yeah. that didn't come true uh, for sure. And I entered uh, a period of my life that was probably, not probably, definitely the worst time of my life. Wow. I spent eight years going in and out of AA I spent time in treatment again, got out, relapsed, uh, went to A regularly, uh, would get six months, nine months, eight months, clean time, and then have a, yet again another relapse. Finally, on September 16th, 2007, I used my last drug and took a while to I was always more about drugs than alcohol. I, of course, never turned down a drink. Uh, in those days either, but I used my last drug on September 16, 2007, so that with the grace of God and the power of the 12-step recovery program, in a little more than six weeks, I'll be celebrating 15 years of continuous sobriety again, uh, and for which I'm very grateful. Uh, in 2008, uh, I was, well, during relapse, I was unemployed because I was unemployable. Uh, and actually lost my medical license uh, because I was on urine drug screening of my own and was using drugs uh, and got caught, uh, which was a good thing because mm -hmm. that helped me get sober again. Uh, 
So in 2007, I got sober again. I could not find a job. Uh, luckily, I was financially comfortable enough that it wasn't critical that I work, except for me, work had been such an integral part of my life. I felt that going back to work would help my sobriety, help my recovery. But without a medical license, uh, I was just a guy with a lot of education, but no professional credibility. Uh, the last job I applied for in the one that I read about in the one dance was to become a rodent inspector for the city of Atlanta. And I was rejected from that. Uh, to overqualified or? Uh, they just said, we're not interested. Uh, yeah. So, but that was again, the good news. Uh, my therapist at the time said, Barry, when you are ready, the job will come. But she was one of those therapists, although she was in recovery and truly I owe a big piece of my life to her. I didn't believe that. Sure. It did. That's exactly what happened. And in uh, June of 2007, June of 2008, June 2008, I got a phone call from the man I still work for. He's the owner and the CEO of a company called Affinity Health. Affinity Health at its core is a software development company, but uh, got involved in drug testing and developed software uh, because again, at their core, they're a software development company. <clears throat> they developed software that would enable the uh, people who were monitoring professionals in recovery, doctors, nurses, attorneys, anyone with a state license who is known to have a substance use disorder. 40 years ago, they lost their license and lost were lost professionally forever. The good news is today, with the understanding that a substance use disorder, alcoholism, addiction is a disease, uh, state boards, uh, bar associations, nursing boards, medical boards have all come to believe that as long as the professional who may license is sober at the time, they can main, be maintained and do their work and be the professional they were trained to be. Uh, so, but the problem of course was also older oh, with state agencies. It's also about budget and money. And mm -hmm. so they would have a, an, an, an agency of staff maybe with two or three people to monitor four or 500 physicians. That became a Herculean task without software. Uh, so again, my boss and his developers developed software to automate the process, to computerize the process, to make the process efficient, but without having someone in recovery on their staff. And because of my previous work in treatment centers that specialized in treatment of professionals, I also knew the players. So when I originally got this phone call in June of 2008, I was without a medical license, but I was hired to do sales and marketing for Affinity. Uh, in 2012, 13, I got my medical license back. And that's when 
the marketing title, though it's still there on the card, uh, it's superseded by medical director and medical review officer. To define a medical review officer for your for your listeners, Terry, a medical review officer sounds military, right? I'm not. I'm very much a civilian. Uh, but drug testing, the history of drug testing goes back to the military, goes back to Vietnam, goes back to the fact that during Vietnam, we had a tremendous amount of drug abuse in those jungles in Asia. And after Vietnam, these GIs came home and many of them were addicted. Some of them who were don't have the genetics to have a substance use disorder were able to just stop using when they got out of the environment. But we believe at least somewhere between 10 and 20% of the general population has the genetic makeup to have developed a substance use disorder. So what was to become of all these, some of whom stayed in the military? So the military got involved in drug testing. They developed this term medical review officer because again, it was military, but that term has been maintained and sticks. And a medical review officer is defined as a licensed physician who has special training in toxicology so that with that expertise, I am able to interpret a drug screen result relative to the history that the donor of the specimen gives me upon interview. For example, uh, a donor, uh, uh, someone being monitored, has a urine drug screen that comes back positive for cocaine. And she tells the monitoring agency, well, I didn't use cocaine. So then they call me the medical review officer. I call the donor and she tells me, well, I took penicillin and I read on the internet that that can cause a false positive for cocaine. And that's why I'm positive. And in my expertise with the knowledge, I say, I don't say what I'm thinking, but I say it in much nicer words that that's just not possible. And the only explanation for this positive drug test is you ingested cocaine. And then the monitoring agency has the power to either insist that that person goes back to treatment or, you know, they, they carry a carrot and a stick. Do what we say and you keep your license. Don't do what we say and we report you to the board, medical board, nursing board, bar, yeah. whatever the profession. Right. Uh, for the non-professionals listening, drug screening also has a place in everybody's recovery. Studies have shown that the chances of a successful recovery go up exponentially with the addition of drug testing to somebody's uh, routine, uh, in addition to going to meetings and working with a sponsor and working the steps. I am a 12-step kind of guy. Uh, I believe that is the basis for the healthiest and most successful recoveries out there. There are other ways to get sober. I just don't speak to them because it's not my experience. Uh, but at any rate, the problem with drug testing for anybody coming out of a treatment center or anybody walking into Alcox Anonymous is the cost.
uh, drug testing costs money. Like going to a doctor and having blood work costs money. Some insurance companies will pay for your blood work. The vast majority of insurance companies, in my experience, which is 14 years worth, will not pay for ongoing drug screening. If someone goes to an emergency room uh, as for, for after an automobile accident, they'll pay for the drug screen in the ER. But if someone goes to treatment because they've had an addiction, they might pay for that first drug screen when they got admitted, but they're not going to pay for drug screens for ongoing monitoring. Uh, that's number one. And number two, I mentioned the carrot and the stick. With the professionals, there's the stick of you do what we say or you don't have your license and lose your profession. Uh, I have worked with non-licensed professionals who do do drug screening. Some corporations who support their people who develop this disease will say, well, you can come back to work, but you must show us negative drug screens. And then they get referred to us. Similarly, I've worked with young adults whose parents say, you know, we'll continue to support you in school, we'll continue to let you live in our home, but we want negative drug screens. And again, the, the stick is the consequences that the parent would put on the child if a drug screen came back positive. Sure. But it would be in a perfect world, everybody and everybody who left the treatment center would, would have some ongoing toxicology monitoring, because again, we know it improves success rates, it improves outcomes substantially. Well, it's the only definitive piece of accountability, right? I mean, you can Correct. lie your way through Correct. anything else. Absolutely. And it's the only definitive black and white accountability there is. Correct. Uh, there's a lot more to recovery than not using oh. drugs and alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is the black and white. Right. The rest of it is subjective. The rest of it, I mean, talented people, experienced people, people who've worked in the field for a long time. If I can say many of us have bullshit detectors, I hope that word was okay. <laughs> Bleep. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I use a lot of those words. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be good. Uh, but uh, I've been lied to by the best of them. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, uh, I don't claim to. I mean, there are people who work in this field. I have colleagues who say they don't need drug testing because they know when a, uh, one of their patients is lying. Oh. I say BS to that, too. Yeah. Because again, I'm a recovering man. I've been inside and outside. I still give drug screens. Right. I still, I'm going to be 15 years sober. But yeah. five, six, seven times a year, I get a call that says, you're going tomorrow to drop a screen. And that's good. Yeah, that's it's, good. it's good. Yeah, because even though those colleagues of yours say they can, you know, figure out if somebody's lying or not, that doesn't help the person that needs to be tested. Correct. I mean, you know, it's Correct. their accountability. Correct. And yeah. knowing that I might be tested tomorrow may be good today. using today. That that's right. Correct. Exactly. It's not a guarantee because, yeah. again, the disease of addiction is incredibly right. powerful. Right. By the way, I use addiction and alcoholism interchangeably. Okay, sure. Alcoholism 
is addiction to alcohol. Yep. And in, in yep. its simplest form. Sure. And there are some people in AA rooms who like to argue about that, but the mm -hmm. science tells me. Yeah, we're the same. Okay, I want to before I, I want to talk about the drug testing piece of it. But you said something um, when you talked about the person that you go in and you review the toxicology, and if somebody tests positive for cocaine, and they give you an excuse. So that is a question that I have because for many years I worked at a facility and did not realize that it was possible for somebody to test positive for a substance, but if they had a prescription for it the results came back as negative. So how does that, yeah, okay. okay. Let me speak to that. Yeah. That result would come back negative, not in the testing I do. That okay. would, in uh, MROs mainly work for, and work with urine drug screens uh, for, for people who are under the Department of Transportation laws. Okay, that's okay. truck drivers and cab right. drivers and bus drivers and people who are pilots and people who work nuclear regulatory commission. Now, those MROs have specific federal guidelines that they follow. And when that drug screen result comes back to it goes first to the MRO. The MRO is then in that in that scenario the MRO is then charged with calling the donor of the specimen. If the donor of the specimen can produce a valid prescription for that substance, that MRO will report that as a negative test. However, again, if you go under the weeds and look at the test itself, that test was positive. In the world I live in, First of all, the results don't come first to me. They go first to the monitoring agency. Then the monitoring people, affinity clients, will ask for my help, my expertise on certain cases. Now, if I get somebody with a positive uh, test for codeine and uh, I and the monitoring agency doesn't know what they're do, doesn't know what prescriptions they're on, they ask me to review the case. I then call that donor. And that donor tells me, well, I have a prescription for Tylenol with coding. So, of course, I cannot believe that on face value. So I say to that donor, well, what I need you to do is take a photograph of your prescription bottle so that I can see your name, the name of the drug, and the date that prescription was filled. And you need to send that to me. Or you need to go to your doctor or your pharmacist and get a printout on letterhead that tells me what you're telling me is the truth. If I get that documentation, I change that result, not to negative, I change it to a status called prescription positive because it is positive, but it's not an illegal or illicit positive. It's positive because they were given a prescription. An addict or an alcoholic, some of the substance use disorder who has surgery uh, is not doomed to live in pain post-operatively only taking Motrin or Tylenol. Everybody at some point can need prescription drugs. Yeah. Uh, not cocaine, but prescription drugs. Uh, opiates, benzodiazepines, barbiturates. 
And uh, those that's permitted as long as several things happen. One, that donor, the, the patient needs to accept the fact that the brain does not know that that opiate's being given for the post-op yeah. cardiac bypass. The brain still sees, ooh, over. that familiar pathway yeah. gets turned on. So what has to happen is that donor needs to be responsible. When he, he or she gets that prescription for hydrocodone or oxycodone, he needs to say to his spouse, to his sponsor, to his some responsible person in his life, please hold this prescription bottle for me. If I need a pain pill, I'm gonna ask you to give it to me. I would like you to ask me, are you really in pain or do you just wanna get high? If I'm really in pain, I, I would like you to give me. That's the responsibility of everybody in the support network and the, and the substance user himself. Uh, and then similarly, after that whole experience, because the disease may have been turned on, I would recommend increasing the frequency of drug screening yeah. for the next two to three months. Yeah. Because yes, that person is more vulnerable to relapse than he was before the right. episode that he right. needed the oxycodone for. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So maybe so in the world that i'm talking about our our healthcare professionals that we suspect may be diverting specifically um could be that maybe they have a substance abuse problem and aren't diverting but we've been alerted because right. you know it looks like there's some diversion potential and then they go in for a drug test how is that so they have no history of substance abuse, um, as far as you know, the drug testing agency, it's not like we're monitoring right, it something is positive, right? So, what would you say? I mean, how is that assessed? So let's just let's just say me, I somebody suspects me, I go in for a drug test, and then you know I have you know codeine positive, and I have prescription for Tylenol with codeine, I prove it. Then what? What it doesn't mean I'm not diverting from the it hospital. It doesn't mean you're not diverting, right. and a, a drug screen, you know, I mean everything has its value up to a point. That drug screen is not the same as filming you on camera in the pharmacy yeah. diverting. Right. But and if you do have a prescription, the MRO is obligated to again either call it prescription positive or negative, whichever world he's living in at the time and you need to find other avenues to prove or deny the diversion uh continue you know because so, we're concerned we'd like to recommend continued testing because right so are the mros there's no specific standard then you may call it positive somebody else may call it negative no, 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 somebody, no, no, no. Okay. you would call it Positive with a prescription. Prescription, but I, everybody would call it positive with a prescription. All no, MROs, unless the MRO is governed by the DOT federal guidelines, then okay. he would call it negative. But that's not going to happen with health. Healthcare professionals. Okay. Got it. And that happens okay. again with the folks 
who are monitored with the federal guidelines. The concept behind that is the federal guidelines take in the privacy of that bus driver. Now, if that bus driver's driving my kids on a school bus, I'm not particularly worried about his privacy, but federal yeah. government is. I would almost think it's the other way around. I don't I know if you have a prescription or not. If you are positive, you're impaired. And that's a whole other issue, Terry. Yeah. Because there's no... Oh, over the years that I've been working in this field, I've been approached at least a dozen times by the chief of staff of a hospital. And they want to do testing on their whole medical staff or their whole nursing staff. And I will talk to them about how we can do that. But I've yet to have one of them become an affinity client because they then consult with their legal people who say, oh, no, 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 no. It's invasion of privacy. It's a liability issue. I mean, my, my legal brethren, uh, they make a good living sometimes doing wrong things, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. That's a whole category. There is no way that a medical board can address a licensed physician who's still on his pain meds after his gallbladder was removed. There's nobody is going to say to him, you may be impaired while you're taking opiates. You can't work. Right. He would need to be responsible to his own right. conscience. Right. And, and, you know, and take himself out of work. Right. Many right. people will not, don't do that. And again, yeah. also very important amongst nurses who sometimes nurses are the sole support of their family. Mm -hmm. They get X number of sick days. Mm -hmm. They have anxiety problems. Their psychiatrist is prescribing benzodiazepines. They may be taking more than they're supposed to be taking. Yeah. They may go to work impaired, but there's no system in place to test these people, number one. Number two, if the supervisor suspects impairment at work and asks for your drug screen, again, then it will become a positive for the Valium metabolites, for example, if the nurse will prescribe Valium. And one of the limitations of drug screening is that if someone has a prescription for a mood altering drug, even though drug screens, confirmed drug screens provide quantitative values, I cannot look at a drug screen with quantitative values on someone who has a prescription for Valium and tell you whether they're taking more than they're supposed to because drug screening is not that sensitive. It's not sensitive enough to do that. Okay. Because it will be, even though someone on a regular medication will develop a steady state, right after a dose, for example, there'll be a peak. And if the person goes to void, when the peak is there, they're gonna have a higher level than when a trough is there. And therefore, drug screening does not work that way, doesn't work at all in that regard. Right, okay. All right, so there are various ways to test, right? Urine, hair, nails, blood, 
Yeah. Is is there a, a general rule for when you use which kind of test? Yes. Um, there's major differences here um, in window of detection. Okay. And by that, I mean, someone uses today and you're testing them tomorrow, what test should I use? Or someone used last, and usually there's several days go by, which is why urine has become the gold standard. Urine for most- No pun intended. Yeah, it is a pun. I, <laughs> I, when I lecture on this one, I always get a little giggle from the audience. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I do it. I, you know. Anyway, uh, uh, the, the urine's window of detection for most substances is anywhere between up to three to four days, okay? And usually when you got a case where you get involved and you wanna get a screen, a couple of days have gone by. So urine is probably the main uh, substance you're gonna to wanna to get. The other thing you have to be careful is about is not all drug screens, just like not all blood work is the same. You know, lay people, might tell you, I went to the doctor, he took my blood, so everything's okay. Well, that might not be true because he might not have taken the blood test for syphilis. And <laughs> you may have syphilis. Not you, Terry. Anyway, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. It's generic you. It's generic. <laughs> uh, at the same time, drug screens are not the same. And if the health professional is accused of diverting fentanyl, for example, then the drug screen that's ordered must include fentanyl, which is not on routine drug screens. Similarly, the, the most common drug screen, again, going back to the DOT world, is a, a panel set up by NIDA, uh, which does not test for benzos, does not test for barbs, it tests for Thank God they added oxycodone and hydrocodone to the opiate panel because prior to a year and a half ago, the only opiates they tested were codeine and morphine, which oh, are natural opiates. And they all, in addition to those opiates that they now test, but again, fentanyl's not on that. They also test for PCP, marijuana, cocaine. Oh, God damn it, I always block one. And amphetamines, and amphetamines, okay. Uh, but uh, again, fentanyl, and that's the most common screen out there. So if the nursing supervisor or pharmacy supervisor sends John Smith to the ER to get a drug screen, we gotta specify, be sure we're testing for benzos. Be sure we're testing for fentanyl. Be sure we're testing for Kratom. That's a huge problem today, Kratom, is a legal substance that is mood altering in small doses. It's a stimulant, it's like cocaine, but in large regular doses, it is an extremely powerful opioid. The government finally did the right thing about a year and a half ago, trying to make this drug a category one substance. But, uh, <clears throat> but what I believe is the lobby and the powers of money got that decision reversed and Kratom was now available online in 
head shops, not that anybody knows what they are, but I, I happen to drive past a head shop in Atlanta to my regular A meeting when I'm at home and their billboard advertises Kratom available here. Oh, wow. And this is an incredibly dangerous substance. Yeah. What about but, propofol? Are there tests for propofol? Oh, there are tests for propofol. Okay. You can get both hair and urine tests for propofol. Okay. Let's go back to that. Uh, for your first question, why don't we just do blood? Because, you know, that's where it's at. Except if somebody is acutely mood altered, acutely comatose, a blood screen can be very valuable. But the blood will clear itself in 8 to 12 hours, depending on the dose. And again, usually we don't get somebody that early. Oral fluids, uh, when COVID happened, we at Affinity began doing virtually observed oral fluid collections. The drug panels are pretty good. Alcohol can be detected, but the window of detection for alcohol and oral fluids is only 12 hours. And for most substances are 24 to 36 hours. So again, oral fluids though, they have a place, their windows of detection make them, in my opinion, less valuable. Now, then we go to hair and nails. Head hair goes back, has a window of detection back three to four months. Fingernails will look back six months and toenails can look back 12 months. However, there are limitations to hair and nails because these are both external, these are all external substances. They can be adulterated. For example, if you Google how to beat a hair test, you'll learn all sorts of things. If you Google how to beat a nail test, you'll learn all sorts of things. And some of those things actually work, okay? So that what we know about hair and nails is a negative hair test, a negative nail test, never proves abstinence because in addition to the adulteration factor, even though theoretically a one-time use could be deposited and detectable in someone's hair, most of the time it's multiple uses over time okay. for a hair to be positive. So again, a negative hair and negative nail never proves abstinence. The other problem with hair and nails, because they're external, they are susceptible to the environment in which that person has been living. For example, that nurse husband is a cocaine user. He uses cocaine in their home. He uses cocaine in their bedroom. Uh, and that nurse is up being monitored and she comes up with a hair positive for, for cocaine. That result, could be either be either from ingestion or environmental exposure. I can't tell the difference. Okay. I can't tell the difference. Okay. So this is most important, particularly with cocaine and methamphetamine, because of the way they're used. They're smoked and they're powders, and environmental exposure is a real problem. Okay. In health professionals, I had a couple very interesting cases with pharmacists actually. Uh, I had a pharmacist years ago who had came back with fingernails positive for hydrocodone. And he said, I don't use hydrocodone. 
I dispense it all day long. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we did his toenails and they were negative. Hadn't gotten there. Well, oh yeah, you're not counting with your toes. Right, you're not counting. With, so, mm -hmm. and, and you know, nurses are taught when they administer meds to use gloves. You guys who are pharmacists don't use gloves. Yeah. You use yeah. that pusher. Right, but with dust, powder. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so, I tell yeah. the pharmacists that are being monitored, wear gloves. Wear gloves. Wear gloves. Yeah, yeah, because you wouldn't think about that. Right. So if I'm understanding you correctly, if there's somebody in the healthcare world that we, like right now, they're acting impaired, we want to send them for testing, a blood test would if be fine. If they're acutely impaired. Okay. Otherwise... Acute. It's urine. Okay. Otherwise, Otherwise it's urine. urine. And make sure that your panel, every that the hospital should just have. I, I know they do. They have standard panels, but they should. Their standard panels need to include these other items Correct. that everybody has access to. Correct. In in the hospital. Like oh, okay. for the people in the OR, and like fentanyl for the people right. in the OR and the GI suite. But actually. In the old days, when I first started working in this business, fentanyl was an anesthesia drug. You know, we didn't see it amongst yeah. other health professionals. Now, of course, with fentanyl patches and fentanyl lollipops, uh, diversion of fentanyl uh, can be from anywhere in the hospital. Pretty widespread, yeah. So it should just be on the standard, the I mean, standard test. Been, yeah. I mean, I've known many... Uh, patients over the years, you know, their modus operandi was to take the patch off, suck the gel out from between the membrane and the patch, and then use that as an injection. The other interesting thing about fentanyl is in the old days, uh, fentanyl, when it was just used IV, was a rapid in, rapid out, and hard to detect in your- That's what I always thought, too. However, the yeah. Several good things have happened. One, the labs have gotten better at detecting the fentanyl metabolite. Okay. And I've had people who actually had IV fentanyl for an OR procedure and it still tested positive for the metabolite three to four days out. That's one thing. And two, with patches and other injectable substances, some people are doing it sub-Q and IM and not IV. So again, the window of detection, sub-Q and IM, will be longer than intravenous. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I always had it in the back of my head that fentanyl is really hard to catch. It is, so, which is, yeah. again, one of the, the good news about hair is opiates are very well bonded to the hair protein so that I advise all of our clients who are monitoring someone with fentanyl in their history to get a hair periodically. Again, okay. negative hair doesn't prove it, but a positive hair, I've seen many positive hairs for fentanyl over the years. Okay, okay, so, yeah. So it really matters, yeah. yeah. Acute symptoms, right. think there might be something or you're monitoring somebody to right. make sure they stay. stay and you're an addict or an alcoholic, if they want to get high, are going to do whatever they can find. But mm -hmm. most people go back to their drugs of choice. That's, you know, in the, when they get too involved in their relationship. Right, right. And so, for alcohol, is a blood alcohol, alcohol 
is very interesting. Alcohol, even amongst health professionals, is the most commonly abused drug. And I call alcohol a drug because it is. Uh, you know, you watch those Westerns from back in the 1900s when they're about to cut the guy's leg off. What they do, they gave him a bottle of scotch to drink because alcohol is a drug. Benzodiazepines are just alcohol in a pill form. They interact with that exact same uh, center in the brain. Benzos and alcohol do. Uh, so that alcohol prior to 15 or 20 years ago uh, was very difficult to monitor and test for. Uh, things changed. Uh, but before I go to what changed, the reason I say it was difficult is the physiology of alcohol is such that even if someone gets loaded at the bar one night, within 12 to 16 hours, that alcohol is not going to be detected in the urine anymore. Most alcohol is excreted through the breath, okay, which is why we have breathalyzers and, and people smell of alcohol. But the amount that goes through the urine goes in almost as goes out almost as quickly as it goes in. So alcohol was hard to monitor until about 15 years ago when we developed urine drug screening for two alcohol metabolites. Alcohol metabolites, a metabolite is the substance that the body produces as it processes the toxin out. So we have two alcohol metabolites which are detectable in the urine for up to 72 hours after somebody has been drinking. Speaking of alcohol, on the DOT mandated tests, alcohol is not tested unless it's uh, an accident, an after accident investigation. Mm -hmm. Then those investigators will test for alcohol. Routine DOT testing, again, because alcohol is legal, uh, doesn't include alcohol testing. but. Again, for a health professional who appears, appears impaired uh, and alcohol may be suspected, sure. getting a urine for ETG and ET, that includes these two metabolites, becomes a valuable resource. Okay. So that should probably be included. Yeah. Maybe two separate panels. The one where somebody looks impaired, make sure you right. include that. The one where you've got a case and you're testing, right. then you probably don't need it because it wouldn't show up. Right. Okay. All right. That's great. Wow. This is a, a lot of information. I'm sure there's way, way more that we could continue to discuss, but I appreciate this overview and I want to congratulate you. I did not realize your history. So congratulations on yeah, your well, many, many you years. Know, the second A in, in AA is anonymous. My personal belief is when I was using, everybody knew it. So now that I'm sober, I'm happy for everybody to know it. That's why I self-disclose very freely. Yeah, no, I think that's fabulous because I think that, you know, the more stories that we hear like yours, one, it's a story that gives us hope, right? If you're somebody that is struggling, it gives you hope. But then I think it also helps to recognize that there are healthcare professionals. There are people that are in this situation and they get, in this loop and i mean the, you know the picture of a drug addict and alcoholic that many people have in their brain is the guy on the bowery the guy mm -hmm. in the doorway 
the guy, you know, in the dark, mm-hmm. bedraggled and and poor. And there are certainly there are many of those as well. But many people with education, people you're sitting next to in the theater, people mm-hmm. you're going to see for legal advice or medical advice, yeah. people who are taking care of you or your loved ones in the hospital as nurses. We used to say in one of the treatment centers I worked at that addiction is an equal opportunity disease. Mm-hmm. It does not spare you because you're rich, or does not pick on you because you're poor, doesn't right. spare you because you're well-educated. Uh, you know, we're all, there is a genetic component to the disease. Yep. yep. Uh, but that doesn't mean if there's no alcoholism in your family, you can go do whatever you want. Right. Because, uh, right. We can modify our genes, and we've been learning that over the years. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the healthcare professionals, everyone, but they need to understand they're not alone. Correct. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so I think this is great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Barry, for your time today. This was great. Uh, It was a good overview for me, and so I hope this, I'm sure it'll be beneficial for lots of the listeners out there. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Terry, please stay in touch with me anytime I can be helpful. Okay, that would be great. Thank you very, very much. Very well. Bye bye. Bye bye. Have a good afternoon. You too.